Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Davis from NPR News, and I want to thank you for listening today and joining us for a special North Star Journey live conversation done in partnership with Sahan Journal to talk about the growing problem of substance abuse and addiction among Hmong and Karen youth. We have a full panel of experts here and a group of concerned community members as well. And I also have a co-moderator for this discussion. This is Samantha Honglong uh, from Sahan Journal. Samantha is the audience growth manager at Sahan Journal. Hi, Samantha. Hi. <laughs> so start us off by telling us why did Sahan choose this topic? Yeah, it's really community-driven. So as many of you know, Sahan Journal covers immigrants and communities of color in Minnesota. And we're hearing from many Hmong and Karen families who are alarmed by the increase in substance abuse that they're seeing in their young people. And especially when it comes to opioids and in particular, fentanyl addiction. So tonight we're here to talk about why it's happening and how fighting addiction can be such a unique and difficult challenge uh, in immigrant communities and what's already being done the work that's being done toward collective healing. Uh, we like to be solutions-oriented and give people hope as well. So let's uh, introduce our panelists. Uh, here with us tonight, we have Seiklo Wa. Uh, Seiklo is a youth case manager for the Corinne Organization of Minnesota. And uh, thank you for being here, Say. Thank you. Hi, nice to meet you. We also have Francois Vang, a Hmong clinical social worker, at Nystrom and Associates, who specializes in working with immigrant and refugee populations. Welcome, Francois. My pleasure. Hi. And then next to Francois, we have Dr. Ziwe Antaba, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School. And he has a really unique background in global health, which gave him the desire to understand how historical mistreatment and trauma impact communities. So glad you're here, Dr. Antaba. Thanks for having me. And on the end there, we have uh, the founder of Daryel Youth, that is Abdurrahman Mukhtar there. And Daryel is pivotal in targeting substance abuse and addiction among East African youth in the Twin Cities. And I'm looking forward to hearing your stories, Abdurrahman. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, first, we want to really start by getting a, a good understanding uh, about the unique challenges faced by Karen and Hmong youth when it comes to substance abuse and addiction. And um, Seiklo, I want to start with you. Uh, you know, addiction, when you hear about it, substance abuse, uh, you know, I, I instantly think of how entire families are affected. But uh, as a youth case manager at the Karen Organization of Minnesota, what are you seeing and hearing from, from the young people, the teenagers, the kids? Yeah, uh, so some of the things that I see and heard from the youth is that uh, kids are able to get drugs anywhere they, like, they want. Uh, it's like the drugs are available everywhere right now. and Easy to get. They're able to get it. Yeah, they're easy to get. They can either get it for their friends, uh, their, sometimes even their family member and on the street and for strangers. So, uh, and now see more and more youth are using, especially the Korean people. And we see as young as 11 years old uh, are, are using it right now. 11? Yes. So middle school, maybe. Yeah. That's like what... Fifth, sixth grade. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Easy access. And, and for, you said even maybe they can get them from family members? Yeah. 
Uh, so, like, uh, one of the clients, uh, he started using it because his older brothers use it, and uh, I guess they somehow get along and help one another to get on the drugs together. Yeah. Do you find there's an awareness of danger with it? Or is it just seen as, like, it's cool and it's what a lot of people are doing? Well, uh, I'm sure they all know it's, it's something very deadly, it's dangerous, but uh, I guess uh, because who they surround themselves with, especially uh, those who are younger, they look up to older folks and older friends, and when their friends encourage us or pressure them to do stuff like that, and they, they want to be cool, you know, they don't want to be left out, they want to be fit into the group. So although they may know it's dangerous, they don't know uh, that, how this could affect them, you know, and, and they, they use it. And now, long afterward, you can see they're addicted to it. Mm. And substance use affects all communities, you know, everyone. But what's unique or what's different about this within uh, Hmong families, within Karen families? So uh, within the Karen family, uh, it's harder to, uh, to help the Karen uh, youth because... From my culture, my, uh, with the Korean tradition, people don't usually tend to talk about their feelings or the things they struggle with. So by the time when the parent came to us to help their kids, they already, their kids already highly addicted to drugs. So this one, like, it's already hard, it's, it's making it harder to help them, uh, if that makes sense. Do you think they recognize they're addicted or do they think, like, I could stop this whenever I wanted to? Oh, they're highly addicted because, uh, most of the, when I work there, they do want to start, but because of the, uh, the withdrawing so right. bad for them, they just tend to go back to the, uh, to drugs. So how do you go about approaching, um, young people, building trust, uh, rapport with Korean youth, uh, who may be hesitant, reluctant to get help? Yeah, uh, so some of the youth, they're, uh, they're more quiet, they're more shy to uh, open up to you. Uh, so when I talk to them, like, I don't have any special skills, but I use what I have. I show them love, I show, I show them patience. I tell them I'm here for you, not as a teacher, as a brother. You know, I'm not here as your case manager. You know, I'm here to help you, I'm the resource. And sometimes I don't talk to them about the problem. I talk about other things, random things, and that's how I op- they open up to me slowly, because... One of the kids, I, I tried to talk to him, but he, he wouldn't open up to me at all. So I was like, do you play FIFA? You know, he was like, he do play mm-hmm. FIFA. And then we started playing FIFA together. And then I can see he's totally a different person than it was a few minutes ago. And he started to talk to me more and more. Sometimes I invited him to go to go to play soccer or to go to the gym together. And sometimes I offer them a free haircut. That's how I build a relationship with them. You know? and, but they are different. They all have different personality. And I, it takes time to get to know them one by one. To build trust, yeah. to allow them to feel seen yeah. and heard. And I just don't yeah. give up on that. I know many times they will betray me. They will uh, go back to the things that they told me they're not going to do anymore. I know that. And it hurts sometimes. It gets discouraged. But I, I told them I'm not going to give up on you. You know, I'm here. I'm here for you. And one more question. Uh, that sounds like a success story to me. But do you have other success stories? Are there some young people that you, from, uh, you know, you met them at one point and you saw them change and, and have success and, and breaking free from addiction? Yes, yes, sure. I do actually have a couple of friends that I know personally. I know them as, they're my close friends. One of my friends, he was my childhood friend from Tyler Refugee Camp. Mm-hmm. Then when he came to America, he was uh, led in Georgia and I was in Ohio. But I haven't seen him like in a few years, like several years or so. And when I met him again in another city and countryside, he was very, he's totally, he's changed, he's different. And 
I noticed that he was addicted to uh, it was a fan at the time. It was meth something. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so he told me that he was when his parents moved out of that uh, city to another city. He doesn't have any access to get the, to the drugs anymore, and there there was not a lot of Korean people there. It was only a few of us, and none of us do drugs. So he doesn't want to do drugs. He don't want to do drugs no more. So he's he really disciplined himself to. Uh, to stop using it or to try to find a way to um, back to drug, although he was suffering a lot, and we didn't, know, I didn't know anything about that. Uh, so for a very long time, um, now now that I met him again after I moved to Minnesota, he moved here before me. Now he's he's doing very well, and I'm so proud of him because he's been sober for two years now. And literally this morning, uh, he, we went to gym together. He was my uh, personal trainer, oh, <laughs> so <wow>. yeah, he <laughs> he did. Uh, went through a lot and I'm so proud of him that he made it and yeah I have other friends who also went through the same thing but similar uh, similar story but different uh, different mm-hmm. ways of uh, overcoming addiction uh, one of them is that because he cares about his family although he was very highly addicted to the uh, fennel uh, now he's uh, he's sober for one year now uh, so what really made him start for the last time, I know many times he lied to his family, he lied to uh, people around him that he's not using no more, but there's one time when he literally passed out in front of everybody in the classroom. And then oh. he, he passed out, he overdosed, and then when he was in the uh, hospital, he looked to his left, he told his sister that, please don't tell mom. But then his mom, his mom was right next to him on the right side. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, it shows that he cares a lot about his family, but at the same time he was also struggle with this addiction. But then ever, ever since that, his parents moved out to a different city and, you know, he cut off the connection with his old friends and he go to the doctor and get the medicine and see the therapist and, yeah, made new friends and now he's doing fine. I went fishing with him not long ago and, yeah, he seems very happy. Yeah, he's recovered slowly. They can get through it. Thank you, Sekla. Yeah. Thank you. Francois, turning to you, based on your experience, what cultural factors do you believe play a significant role in impacting the readiness of Quran and Hmong community members in seeking treatment for substance abuse? Yeah, I uh, would like to start off by saying, and I want to make this very uh, crystal clear that, you know, culture is not the factor to blame here, you know. Um, you know, before I'm going to dive into the cultural factors, you know, that are, you know, contributing to the impact, you know, that our communities, you know, are struggling with, we really have to understand, you know, the historical trauma that the community, including, you know, the current, you know, community have gone through. And I don't need to dive into the specifics of, you know, our trauma history and, you know, the the impact that, you know, I'm seeing every day, you know, um, through the lens of my clients or even in my own uh, community. But it is, it is very important, and I, I really want to emphasize, you know, that strong importance of, like, you know, going back to the roots of the historical trauma that, you know, people continue, you know, to struggle through. It's been, you know, more than a little bit over 40 years that the Hmong people, you know, have been here, in the, at least in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I'm counting, you know, 20 now-ish, you know, for the current community. And it is a cycle that definitely, you know, needs to be broken down. But it is, it is just so hard, you know, especially when people, you know, are 
going to be, you know, dealing with, you know, all kinds of different, you know, uh, struggles, uh, which leads to the cultural, you know, factors that you mentioned. Um, so for me, really from a, um, mental health therapist, what I would like to, uh, dive into are, you know, the, the primary, you know, cultural factors that, you know, the Hmong community, you know, are experiencing. Um, and the one that really stands out for me, you know, are the cultural expectations, the roles that we put in, you know, for our sons, our daughters, our brothers, our uncles, you know, what does it mean to be a wife? You know, what does it mean to be a husband? So when you take the time to really dive into the roles and expectations of the different families, you know, that we work with, um, there's just so much more complexity, you know, and it is, it is just so hard to make sense of this because, um, here in the U.S., we value independence. We value, you know, change. And as you can imagine, it is not how we perceive, um, you know, our presenting problems. You know, in the Hmong culture, in, and I'm sure that uh, in the current communities, from what I've been encountering, I'm very confident to say that, you know, collectivism is the way, you know, of life. Because we, this is how we survive, together, in cohesion. So, that, that concept of, you know, uh, collectivism is, is just so important to understand because when you live in group, um, everyone is going to have to play, you know, a significant important role in the family. You know, it's not mom or dad or the caregiver who holds the most important role in, you know, everyone, you know, plays a significant role. And whenever people are going to, you know, be faced with struggles and adversities and those kind of things. Um, like I said, drugs and, and mental health is just one fraction of the whole entire picture, but it goes much deeper than that in my own experience. So making sure that we understand, you know, the roles, the, the cultural identity and what that means, you know, for the individual is, is so important. Um, that really leads to, you know, the, the Hmong community really continues to hold a patriarchal society where men, you know, tends to have, you know, more of a voice, you know. And so I know that that can also lead to some conflicts, you know, between those different roles and those different, you know, gender identity and, again, what it means, you know, to be a son, a man, you know. Um, so understanding that structural, you know, family, you know, um, is, is very important. And what I was going to say about, you know, like the, the collectivism uh, piece is that in order to make sure that we keep people accountable, right, um, our culture, I'm just going to name it, 
uses you know, shame as a tool to really ground people in their role, in their identity. And shame is, is like this burning sensation you know, that you have on your chest. And it is such a difficult you know, uh, feeling, an emotion you know, that does not make sense. And I would say, you know, like, I think for the Hmong community, you know, we, we continue to lack, you know, um, to be aware, you know, of those strong, you know, secondary emotions that, you know, our individuals, communities, you know, um, youth, you know, are going through, you know. Drug has been used as, as a tool to cope. The emotional pain that, you know, our communities are going through, the struggles, you know, that our families go through is, is so, so complex as stated before. So a lot of people, you know, turn to drugs to numb the pain. And as a result of this, of course, you know, those, those are, those symptoms uh, that, you know, uh, Seiklo, you know, mentioned about the addiction um, are going to be, you know, the forefront, you know, symptoms, the the behaviors, the maladaptive behaviors that we, we continue to see, you know, within our um, communities. I want to make it very clear that a lot of families, you know, from the current and Hmong communities continues to, you know, practice this collectivism, right, uh, this... The, the, and, and again, we don't have more of a positive, you know, connotation around this. And in my field, you know, we just call it the emeshed family. And I want to make it very clear that I, I really want to be able to remove, you know, the negative connotation that it's creating, you know, for most of our us as professionals and the mainstream society. Um, and again, because the Hmong families... The current families, you know, the first wave, the first generations, you know, who came to this country, you know, prioritized, you know, survival. All they could do is to make sure that they can navigate, you know, through the system, adjust and adapt, right, to the mainstream's expectation, the laws, the policy. And we continue to struggle through this. So we stick together, right? Um, you know, I think it's very difficult, you know, to, for Hmong families to navigate through, um, you know, the system uh, because unfortunately we continue to live in a society, you know, that's very broken, you know, let's just name it. Um, and, and part of this is really because of the lack of understanding, again. You know, the lack of awareness. Um, because it really goes back, you know, to, you know, the main roots. The historical trauma that I mentioned on the above. 
So, Francois, I want to come back to you. Samantha has more questions for you, but I, I am a big fan of research and data. So, um, Dr. Ataba, I want to talk to you about data uh, research, the impact of, of racial disparities and substance abuse treatment. And so I want to know, what does uh, data that, that you have uh, spent time looking at reveal about the prevalence of substance abuse and addiction within Minnesota's community of colors, uh, particularly among Karen and Hmong populations? Um, you know, what does the research show, the data show about how big of a problem it is, and, and you know, what are you seeing? So I've um, spent some time looking uh, at these questions. Um, I've looked for data that helps shed light on the differences among demographic groups uh, around substance use behavior. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that the data I've found is pretty light uh, is that there aren't significant differences, certainly not enough to explain the disparities that we're seeing when it comes to the level of substance use amongst different demographic groups. I think that's nationwide, but I think that's also true in Minnesota. What the data do show is that the outcomes, the health outcomes and the social outcomes of substance use are much worse in certain demographic groups. Mm. There's public health data that's actually countrywide and then particularly in Minnesota that shows certain demographic groups have much worse outcomes, chances of death from substance use disorder, from opioids in particular. Um, that Is that because t- of disparities just in the healthcare system and just many other? I think there's quite a, uh, there's a list of contributing factors, including social determinants of health. But just to give you an illustration, um, Minnesota, Minneapolis in particular, uh, has some of the worst health disparities or outcomes when it comes to opiate overdose deaths. The worst in the country, actually. Um, the, in Minnesota, it's also bad, uh, but the data that's available shows, say, for black Minneapolitans compared to white Minneapolitans, it's about four to one increase, uh, chance of overdose death. Um, if you look at indigenous communities, that number is 30 to 1 uh, in terms of disparities in death data. The That only tells part of the story because each death certificate is associated with untold stories of harm that led up to that person's overdose. So the social consequences, the family separation, the isolation, the infections, the the hospital visits... Um, so we have a bad problem. The question when it comes to more specific communities like uh, Karen or Hmong in this case, or Somali community, East African community, we don't necessarily have the public health data that drill down to that level uh, to say, and I think that's a, a nature of how death certificates are reported. Um, but we have other sources of data. The stories that we hear from communities uh, the patient stories that we hear uh, in the emergency room, in my case, um, these are also sources of data that tell us that there's a big problem. The So I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole, uh, but I also wanted to just dovetail on some of what my co-panelists had mentioned. Um, you know, Seiko, you're talking about your youth engagement. Youth across the country uh, are experiencing the highest rate highest increase in overdose deaths uh, compared to the rest of the population. So that's probably also true in individual demographic communities, but that's a countrywide problem. Mm. 
the that speaks to the importance of prevention, early intervention um, uh, for youth because they're getting younger and younger. These pills are disguised as something that is not necessarily as deadly as it sounds. Um, people are pushing rainbow fentanyl. It looks like Skittles or candy. They're pushing, you know, something that's counterfeit Percocet. So it seems more benign. And these kids may not have the wherewithal to understand uh, what it is that um, they're being offered. And when it comes to uh, trauma, I think that's, you know, true in uh, populations, you know, better than I, but it's also true across the board. And when it comes to contributing factors, I think trauma in general is a really underappreciated factor when it comes to overdose death. That's true for generational trauma. Uh, I think we see that um, across different communities. That's true for adverse childhood events. Uh, people who live with that chronic traumatic stress will look to self-medicate and... To cope. Right to cope, yeah. So when we, uh, I'd love for you to elaborate more about uh, racial dis- racial disparities and how that shows up in access to treatment, access to care. When you're looking at um, substance abuse, um, how does that disparity affect the overall health a- outcomes? Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, I mentioned the impact on individuals and families and communities. Um, the when it comes to access, uh, I think engagement and trust is also a major factor. Uh, because if someone has a lived experience where they've been mistreated or felt marginalized, been marginalized, uh, they're not necessarily going to trust our conventional treatment modalities. Um, they are probably more likely to trust, you know, my co-panelists than myself as a doctor because I represent a system that hasn't necessarily been friendly, uh, a broader healthcare system in the country, Mm -hmm. uh, to people, especially with substance use disorder. And that speaks to stigma and trust, uh, which I think are two huge contributing factors. Thank you, Zivay. Yeah, and Abdi Rahman, you've worked on that trust with the community. As the founder of Dardiel Youth, um, you've done work fighting against drug addiction in the Twin Cities Somali community. Could you talk to us about how you made sure that you were doing what really matched the community's needs and how you made sure that your program was working the way that it should? Thank you. Um, Again, I want to thank you, Angela and Samantha, Embry, um, Minnesota Public Radio News and Sahan Journal. So, just to go back um, when I started this um, street reach or outreach work specifically regarding substance use, fentanyl use, and addiction, um, I've done youth work over 20 years, and that's something that I had a passion, and I had that trust with families and young people. And I received an email <coughs> specifically um, concerning East African youth overdosing Fridays and Saturdays 8 to 10 and ending up um, Hennepin County Medical Center and Fairview, um, see the Riverside ER. Specifically, when I received that email, and we used to deal with homicide and gun violence and other issues at that time. So, because... I, that's where my boys were born. That's where, you know, my, I was raising my kids. 
That's the same neighborhood that my kids grew up and the same young people that I um, worked with. So I wanted to make sure that I understand more about what was happening. And the best way you can do that is just meet young people where they are mm-hmm. and just to find out the reality on the ground. And, and a lot of times, because we always had um, young adults and adults who are dealing with substance use, but normally with alcohol and other things. And because of our culture, and you know, a lot of times we stigmatize and we shame them. And so people, even though we see them, they're dealing with addiction, um, we, we just call them names, but we don't associate. And, and we don't try to find ways to um, do outreach and help. So when I started the Real Youth, um, I had one goal in mind, um, which was really making sure that these young people who are overdosing, and because it was synthetic drugs, this is something that new to us. No one knew exactly what it was. Before the, even the fentanyl, we had K2, the synthetic marijuana. Um, that was also a synthetic drug that these young people were dealing with. So my goal was to, number one, um, help these young people who are overdosing, just in case they need someone to call 911, um, someone to administer Narcan, um, someone who can also humanize them and, and have that human connection. But my other goal was also to educate and create awareness within our um, elders and community members because mental health and substance use go together. There's a link. Mm-hmm. And because of our faith, it's a sin um, to even drink or do drugs. Mm-hmm. So when, when you are stigmatizing and you cannot even talk about this specific issue and topic, um, it's very challenging. And when young people overdose at home, uh, we find out parents are even denying that um, because they really don't know what to say. They want to uh, keep it hidden. Yeah. So right. that's what led to, uh, I've seen a lot of our youth and, and even some adults um, getting addicted to this uh, lethal and, um, you know, epidemic of using opioid crisis, but we were not talking about this issue at all. And uh, like I said, within our culture, we don't even talk about mental health. We don't have terminology um, to talk about even um, mental health, let alone substance use. So that's why I decided to be out there um, every Friday last six years, um, 8 to 10, you'll find me at the same location. And, and that is what led to the trust, building trust with young people who are using and find out what resources, what help they need, but also educate um, other um, community members, parents, and then connect to resources to um, people that need the most and allow professionals like Dr. Ziwe and other people that do this work um, to come and, and help, but at the same time connect that resource to the individuals that uh, need the most. I think the most important thing is that we see in our eyes, if you go to any city in Minneapolis, let's say if you go to Minneapolis right now, we see people who are struggling with addiction. These are our family members, these are our children, people that we know, but then let alone we cannot even have eye contact with them. We don't even acknowledge because of we see what they're going through. They're going through pain. They're dealing with this is a disease. 
but we don't acknowledge that. Um, we just tend to ignore and think that they chose this. No one wants to be um, going through what they're going through. Yeah. Were there any unexpected insights or lessons you've learned as you tailor your program towards the Somali community that you think um, as uh, the Karen and Hmong communities are dealing with substance abuse and addiction that you think they could use um, to help them guide as they treat this as well? Yeah. Um, you know, like we always say, navigating the health system, the education system, and the American system is really hard. When you have families, immigrants, um, um, refugees that are new to this country, and, and in our example, um, adults and parents who cannot even read and write their native language, um, but everything that, whether it's the education or the health system is written in English language, um, um, every information is written in, um, in English language, um, it's very hard to um, get the resource that you need, um, the awareness that you need. Um, and these drugs are also new. Um, we are struggling with this. Every city, every community in, in this country is dealing with this. But the difference with um, new immigrants um, is that we were not ready for this, and our parents are not aware of this. They don't know um, what these new drugs are. And we don't have the resources, we don't have the language um, to even talk about this. Um, so, so a lot of times because of the culture and, and how young people are raised in this country, um, what is also contributing to this is the use of social media. Um, you can easily buy drugs now through your phone, and people will deliver that to you. Um, in, in some cases, young people are at home. The parents are thinking, my son, my daughter, she's safe. She's at home. She's not outside in the street. Um, but then she'll say, I'll just go down quickly to grab something from my friend. They don't know drugs are being delivered to them. Mm-hmm. And then they will find their loved ones, um, you know, dying on, in the bathroom or their bedroom. So there's so many challenges that our parents and community members um, really need help with, and they are not aware of that. But the most important thing is really having an event like this, creating an awareness, and having a discussion, an open discussion about the link between mental health and substance use, and finding ways to have culturally appropriate um, outreach and awareness for every community. Without shame. Without shame and stigma. Um, I want to take a minute and remind our listeners that uh, if you're just joining us, you're listening to a special North Star Journey live discussion in partnership with Sahan Journal about how the Hmong and Karen communities in Minnesota are dealing with an uptick in substance abuse, particularly uh, with their kids. I want to reintroduce our panelists. We're talking with Seiklo Wa, a youth case manager for the Karen Organization of Minnesota, Francois Vang, a Hmong clinical social worker at Nystrom and Associates who specializes in working with immigrant and refugee populations, Dr. Ziwei Antaba, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and Abdurrahman Mukhtar, who leads Daryel Youth, which seeks to help 
East African youth in Minnesota deal with substance abuse and addiction. Uh, a question for all, all four of you right now. We've sort of, you've done an excellent job sort of laying the groundwork, describing the problem, what's happening in homes, um, what's happening in the minds of young people. I need to know what's working. I want to hear about what resources, what techniques, what tools, what have you seen uh, that seems to be making a difference that is really helping someone who is struggling with substance abuse? Uh, Say, Chloe, I'll go back to you. Uh, what's, what's working? So uh, there's a lot of resources here in the local community. Uh, we do have a, a Korean organization, Youth Case Manager like me, who we work really closely with the parent and help them get what they want, especially for their kids. And there's a police department that I, we work closely with. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name, Sergio Toy. Uh, he's, uh, Is he uh, doing a good job? Go ahead and he, say he, the name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he, he will go extra mile to help me with my client. You know, sometimes I, will, I was like, I don't really feel safe to go to the, this neighborhood to uh, see my client. He will make time to go with me. He will talk to the client for me sometime. And there's a clinic that, you know, provided a medication. Uh, sometimes we send the kids to uh, churches to talk to the, you know, faith leader. Uh, if they're not Christian, we send it to the temple. Uh, yeah, they're uh, in the Over Village. Uh, we work, also work very closely with them. Uh, and AYO is uh, an Asia Youth Outreach. Uh, right now they're, they're hiring more uh, mentor, which is something I'm really uh, happy about and because... I believe every single one of my clients need a personal mentor. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Francois, what's working? What resources, techniques, tools, what is working to uh, address this? Yeah. So from a clinical standpoint, I'd say, you know, I think um, not just within my own agency, but I think I've, I've seen a, a drastic, you know, positive change, you know, in how, you know, uh, different agencies, you know, um, uh, tackle this issue and and uh, you know help our clients you know uh, them navigate through you know their own struggles especially you know when it comes to you know uh, drugs and addictions and alcohol. Um, I'd say you know from a clinical standpoint you know making sure that you know our clinicians are well trained right, making sure that you know we take the time you know to you know do a thorough you know uh, chemical health. Um, you know, comprehensive drug assessment, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just sort of like, you know, jumping to, you know, um, the professional organizations, the fixing, you know, I think we have to really slow it down and making sure that, you know, we understand, you know, the rationals, the motives and um, those contributing factors, you know, that kind of, like, you know, led to this um, uh, struggle. And then, um in terms of treatment, um, most of our clinical um, uh, clinics uh, throughout the metro uh, do offer, you know, uh, SUD, you know, groups where, you know, uh, the individual um, can come, you know, and connect with other, you know, patients. Uh, and then, you know, rely on others, you know, uh, for, you know, support and learning from the, you know, uh, group facilitator, the clinician, about, you know, um, the tools, the life skills that they'll need, you know, to really, you know, um, overcome uh, this challenge. So that direct service is there, it's out there. You know, it's just a matter of kind of, like, you know, making sure that uh, our community is, is aware of, you know, um, those places um, and how, uh, and, and um, the first steps, you know, mm-hmm. to connect. So. 
Dr. Antaba, what's working? What uh, do you find encouraging? What have you seen, um, you know, have positive results? Um, I can't emphasize enough the importance of medication uh, to treat this condition. Medication. Medication. Mm-hmm. Um, medication to treat opioid use disorder. Uh, there are different medications for different substance use. Um, but by far and away, the most evidence-based intervention uh, when it comes to reducing overdose deaths, when it comes to reducing the harms, all the broad societal harms that come from uh, untreated opioid use disorder, uh, are medications like buprenorphine or Suboxone, um, which is one of the most effective medications we have in the field of medicine. I say this because when people are on, if they have opioid use disorder and they're on this medication, their chances of dying are reduced by 70% compared to someone very similar who has opioid use disorder and not on medication. Uh, it's that big of a difference. Mm-hmm. That being said, only 10 to 20% of people with opioid use disorder actually get this medication. Because they don't have access to it or why? For a number of reasons, but access and I think trust and I think stigma and there are barriers. I mean, all the way from federal government on down, uh, there are unnecessary barriers to providing these medications, uh, to people who need them. They're starting to peel off, but not fast mm-hmm. enough. The country of France had a bad heroin epidemic, uh, skyrocketing overdoses in the nineties and their main intervention was to introduce one medication, buprenorphine or Suboxone, uh, onto their basically primary care clinics under their nationwide formulary. And they were able to reduce the number of overdose deaths by 80% in just four years, simply by giving this medication uh, broad access. The We live in more complicated times here in the U.S. and we have a more fragmented system, but the biology is the same. The I think if people understand that this is a biological disease, it's not a social or moral failing or a spiritual failing, there's brain chemistry uh, that is affected by this, that is damaged by this. Mm-hmm. Much like someone with diabetes, if they have a pancreas that doesn't make insulin, we give them that insulin hormone, that medication. And it fixes it. And it fixes it. They can lead a normal life. Well, fix for diabetics. Right. For uh People struggling with opioid use disorder, it's a combination. The medication is an important first step to stabilize, but then they need to unpack why that they started using in the first place or all the trauma they've accumulated throughout their use. I mean, the, the life of addiction is a very traumatizing experience in itself, and I think that's why we're seeing this spiraling out of control. Abdurrahman, share with us, what have you seen that works, a resource, a technique, uh, what... Uh what are some solutions you want people to know about? Yeah, I think one thing that I've seen really working well is community members who dealt with the addiction, ah. who went to recovery, speaking, we share their story, share their experience, mm-hmm. and and talking about you know recovery is possible. Um, that really helps a lot. I'm also seeing um, a lot of faith organizations um, create awareness and and without shaming. And, and have that discussion in a safe place. Um, we, for the first time in my community that I see, um, media and community members address mental health 
but also discuss about the possibility of taking their loved ones to rehab without any stigma or shaming. Um, the work that I do, being on the street and being there consistently and building trust relationship with young people, um, it's not only uh, having a discussion about rehab, it's giving them a warm jacket in the middle of winter, giving them a pair of socks, uh, just giving them something that they can eat that day. So when next time you want to talk about this, um, it's easier for you because you have that relationship with them. They know that you, you care. You made that um, human connection with them. and Consistently. Yes. Samantha? Yeah, so we've talked about solutions on a community level, but are there any key policies like on the policy level or on the just initiatives that you could see um, that could effectively address the challenges that we've all we've discussed today? Um, and how can we make sure that those policies actually ensure the, the changes that we need? So local or state or federal policies that could, you know, that could be more impactful. Say, Chloe? So, yeah, uh, with the, in the current community, I think... Uh, the main one is that to educate the parent about this issue, this topic, because uh, educating parents, yeah, mm-hmm. like about how to talk to their kids about this kind of problems, these drugs and stuff, mm-hmm. and because uh, a lot of the current parents they uh, they don't have relationship with their kids, you know, uh, and that's just how. What do you mean? Or so uh, so traditionally, current people they don't. Uh, like they they don't really show love uh, to their kids, but they. They will buy things for their kids that tell them that they love them, you know. But grow up in here in America in two different cultures is different. Like uh, a the, lot of the verbal exchange yeah. may not be yes. what we're used to seeing. Yeah. So like for now, we work with the Korean pe- parents closely also to educate them about how to talk to their kids, you know, have build relationship and mm-hmm. uh, about to pre- to prevent them from now get getting their kids in front their kids not to get into drugs and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Francois. Um, so in terms of policies, you know, um, you know, when I'm thinking about this question, you know, I'm, I'm really going back to the, um, the client's ecosystem, you know, the individual's ecosystem. I think, um, making sure that, you know, we have policies that can, you know, everything is just so interconnected and I, I wouldn't want to blame the drug or the behavior for, you know, this, this major uh, pandemic that our communities have been struggling with, but making sure that we can provide, you know, policies, right, that would give easier access, you know, to those vulnerable population, right, among the current and other subgroups, um, to live comfortable, you know, in their homes, in their neighbor, providing more safety, you know, uh, more easy access to medical uh, resources uh, for me like I said it's it's really you know the one thing that that comes in mind uh, developing policies that is going to provide a safe environment for the families our youth and our communities Dr. Antaba local state federal policies that could change the um, I think removing uh, to the extent wherever possible Removing barriers to accessing treatment, um, not only the medications, but the, uh, you know, the continuum of care 
when it comes to medication for stabilization, treatment for, you know, basically uh, starting the process of brain healing recovery, which is the long-term mm-hmm. emphasis on well-being. Um, unfortunately, right now, our system of healthcare is not lined up to incentivize that, to support that. Um, and the cracks uh, are big enough that most people who have this condition, I would say 80, 90 percent, fall through the cracks. Um, with something like fentanyl, with something like synthetic opioids, uh, you know, the clock is ticking because it's we've had fentanyl around for five, six years maybe, um, and the nature of this drug is so devastating for the brain that people will start with just a handful of pills and then go to injecting and then start using other substances like methamphetamine um, because that's the way their brain chemistry is damaged. And is it correct? It's quickly addictive. Like after one use, you you can be addicted to fentanyl? Yes. Uh, and single use can kill nowadays. One pill can kill nowadays is uh, is the refrain. The So... We're unfortunately living in the worst case scenario where we have, you know, we started off 20, 30 years ago by pushing out pharmaceutical companies, pushing out opioids. And then 10, 15 years ago, uh, there's policy changes meant to reverse that, but basically reduce the supply of pharmaceutical opioids. And then, you know, criminal cartels came in to fill in the gap. So even though the number of prescriptions are going down, the amount of overdose deaths are going up. So when it comes to policy prescriptions, you know, I think as soon as possible, uh, reducing barriers to evidence-based interventions, and those are treatment and uh, what we call low-barrier access uh, or no wrong door to treatment. Um, things like emergency rooms and hospitals are, you know, kind of a logical first step. Uh, if there are other areas that can absorb direct access, uh, there are detox facilities um, and addiction clinics uh, are increasingly, you know, engaging people as soon as they hit the door. Uh, but all of that needs to be better incentivized, needs to be better supported. Uh, and on a whole, we'll actually save money if people are engaged in treatment rather than trying to finance their daily fix. This is an expensive habit. The, if they're filling their prescriptions, they're not going to be showing up in jail. Uh, they're not going to be, you know, relying on social services. Um, they're not going to be exposed to infectious diseases through using needles or exploitation. There's any number of um, nightmarish harms that come from untreated disease, and it's the most expensive way to uh, handle this crisis, unfortunately. It's a lot cheaper, and this is shown over and over again, a lot cheaper to provide people treatment uh, than it is to deal with the untreated consequences. And uh, Abdurrahman, if, um, if you look at local, state, or federal policies, what do you see as opportunities for a change that would be beneficial? I think a change that would be really, really helpful is... Um, finding a policy that can hold accountable drug dealers because this is, comes down to money. Um, uh, people are making millions, billions out of this. So, and uh, that's why you see uh, the creativity of these synthetic drugs. Mm-hmm. Every few months, um, new kind of fentanyl drugs are coming up. So, uh, um, so New ones, new in what way? Because they lace with new um, agents. 
they want people to be more addicted to these drugs. Um, and that's why one bill can kill. So ways to deal with drug dealers who are, um, you know, in every neighborhood selling this uh, in a daylight, policies that can enforce that. Um, but at the same time, policies that can encourage mobile clinics that can come to um, places where we know a lot of people who are dealing with this addiction can be found on the streets. Mm. Um, also, policies that can improve community conditions that can support grassroots efforts. Um, because we, we need creative ways to deal with this. The same way drug dealers are being creative, we also need policies that can be creative. Thank you. Samantha? So we've gotten to the audience Q&A portion of our event. We've been collecting questions all throughout the evening and have selected as many as we could to fit in the time that we have left. Starting off, we have some questions from a teacher to Karen and Mong students, and as well as just in general advice for school mental health professionals. How do you help students who are becoming or have already become addicted? Say close. I mean, uh, as a youth yeah, case so, manager, you yeah, also, you know how to talk to young people. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, so I also work with uh, work at Humble with teachers. So some some of the time, the teacher will bring a student to me, tell me that this kid uh, might need help because he's he's not he's looking skinnier. You know, he's be skipping school. He's uh, he's not. He was. He's not. He was the way he used to be. So, so teachers at Humboldt High School, you say, yeah. are noticing changes. Yeah, they notice the change. And yeah, and you can see when somebody's use it, they're they're not their self anymore. You know, their behavior changed. Uh, uh, they tends to skip school a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So how do you talk to them? How do you talk to the student? Mm-hmm. So same way, like uh, I will have one on one with them. A lot of time, I will. Uh, Go directly to the problem. Tell them, uh, ask them about like what's going on. You know, is there anything I can help you? And sometimes when they not open up, I just don't talk about the problem. I talk about other things to earn their trust little by little, and then later on, then we work on the problem. We have limited time. Do you have another uh, good question you want to share, Samantha? Yeah. How do you all approach addicted individuals' underlying shame? We've talked about shame a lot tonight, but how do you deal with that, Francois? I would say, you know, practice what you preach, you know. And how I I practice uh, is through the lens of, you know, embracing your own vulnerability, you know. Um, struggling, not having the answers to uh, all the questions, it's okay. And I think we, we really need to start, you know, as professionals, as adults, we, we do have due diligence to make sure that, you know, we stop labeling, we stop, you know, um, pointing fingers. Um, it starts with us, it starts, it starts with the community. Um, so just to make sure that, you know, we can, we can create, you know, that safe place, right? Um, flipping the script, right? Uh, making sure that, you know, we allow, you know, our, you know, individuals to express themselves and make sense of their own emotions their thoughts before, you know, um, we get into those bad uh, action, the addiction, the, the poor decision-making. So, um, and again, when, when it comes to the Hmong community and the Korean community and others' uh, communities, uh, we don't have the language, right? 
to understand the inner feelings, uh, the choices that we make. So making sure that we pay close attention to that. And Dr. Robin, you've talked tonight about shame, dealing with shame and finding the words. Yeah. <clears throat> so a lot of times what I normally, when I'm on the streets, what I do, for example, the Vikings have been winning lately. And so <laughs> I, I, wear, I wear Vikings hat, and I know young people will talk about either the Vikings or the Tim Walls winning. That's how I start the conversation. Mm-hmm. Something that we have in common, something that reminds them their normal life instead of talking about the addiction itself and what they're going through. Right. And because of that, then you, you normalize that conversation. And like we said, we, we are not all perfect. We are all human beings. We make mistakes. And this addiction and disease doesn't discriminate. And, but the sad thing is that young people, is getting, people who are using are getting younger by the day. So if you are a teacher and if you work with young people, uh, you should focus now vaping. That's the getaway. That's what leads to other drugs now. Vaping is number one because um, they add so many other marijuana, other, other drugs. But also reach out to people who dealt with addiction, who are now advocates, who talk about their stories because storytelling makes a huge difference. So if you invite individuals that can share their own experiences, it goes a long way, and young people and parents can relate to that. I would like to really um, stress on the importance of, you know, partnership. You know, I think, you know, as, as a, either a parent or a teacher, you know, um, it can be very difficult to navigate through that. So making sure that, you know, you reach out. You know, it is a skill. Um, you know, so that we can really engage in that 360 degree view and, you know, uh, find the right, you know, uh, professionals, the people, you know, who, um, will be able to help, you know, the individual who is struggling. Francois, along with that, we have a question here. What options are there, if any, uh, for some immigrant communities who don't believe in Western medicine or talk therapy? Uh, do you find that there are, um, difficulties with navigating the the approaches for traditional healing practices versus Western medicine. Absolutely. I think, um, I think the first step is to really validate, you know, what they are experiencing, you know, um, change is, is really perceived as, as a threat. And again, you know, from an acculturation, you know, perspective, um, you know, for some people, it's going to work, right? For some people, it's not going to work. And we have to be okay with that. I think, you know, making sure that, you know, um, you, we, we as professionals, you know, can only do what we can, right? Um, I always try to remind my clients that you can only be responsible, you know, for the effort and not the outcome. And as part of the effort, uh, from a clinical standpoint, you know, making sure that we continue to provide psychoeducation, you know, making sure that we can provide them with the tools, uh, and our recommendations. And recommendation doesn't mean that it is a requirement, but these are your options. And this is, you know, what's going on, you know, with your son, with your child, with your daughter, with them. What do you want to do about it? There's help, you know. Uh, and then also holding, you know, on the flip side, right, uh, professionals and officials accountable too. To really, you know, be, uh, to take the time to understand our culture, our language, 
mm. our customs and our traditions. Uh, I think this is really important. Um, the Western medicines, you know, our approaches is not just the, the only way, you know, so there are other interventions and other um, avenues. So it's not one fits all, you know. And I'm curious, uh, Dr. Antaba, how do you uh, d- deal with that? Families or patients who really don't believe in Western medicine or, or question it? I, I know you've traveled the world. Yeah, that's, um, you know, in brief, uh, try and meet them where they're at um, and try and uh, flip the script, like you said. Um, try and better explain. You know, there are some medications that I think are essential uh, and I can, the best I can do is offer a medical opinion and um, support their choices. Right. Our time is up for tonight, and I, I just want to acknowledge this has been a, a very enlightening conversation, uh, very informative, and I want to thank our guests and acknowledge you again. We've been talking with Seiklo Wa from the Corinne Organization of Minnesota, Francois Vang, a social worker from Nystrom and Associates, Dr. Ziwei Antaba, an assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical School, and Abdurrahman Mukhtar, founder of Daryel Youth. A big thank you to the members of the audience here with us at the Great Hall in Washington Technology Magnet School here in St. Paul, as well as to the folks at both Sahan Journal and my colleagues at NPR News who work behind the scenes to make all of this happen uh, tonight, to make this a community conversation. Uh, Thank you. And until next time, stay well, everyone. (music) 